Wardcast episode 199. Go! I'm Del Vento, and today I'm joined by Ben Wander, designer over at The Wandering Band. Formerly The Wandering Ben. How are you doing, Wandering Ben? Hello, it's good. It's good to be in a band. I uh, I struggled as a solo artist, and now I'm free to be just one member of foursome. So it's it's good. No, it's good. I'm sorry. This is gonna get really silly. It's Friday. I have a coffee. Um, so uh, it's been a good week so far. I'm happy. So yeah, yeah. How is how's your post uh, E3 cooldown going? It's great. I mean, 50 weeks till another E3, right? This is. <laughs> it's just it's a circle, man. Uh, no, E3 was E3 was really cool, but I'm still catching up on it. Uh, when you're there, or at least when I'm there, I'm in meetings, I'm talking to people, I'm doing whatever. I don't really know a lot of the stuff that went on at E3. So like I came home and I watched all the like broadcasts and all the briefings and stuff. And I went, oh, cool. There's like a sequel to Zelda. I found that out like two weeks after everybody else did. Yeah. Like when I, when I was more on the, on the, uh, the media side, I was kind of like, focusing a lot on that stuff and there's a lot of uh people i follow a lot of hashtag content that i right. <laughs> uh, watch and listen to that like covers a lot of that stuff and i did not want to listen to any of it during that week i was like no i'm in the middle of it i don't care yeah there's too much stuff to do like i'm exhausted by the time i get back to my hotel i fall asleep i wake up and there's like a 9 a.m brunch and i'm like Great, you do it again <laughs> let's go yeah so what is so what is a uh um what is the e3 business week look like for a like you know full-fledged india are you running around taking meetings with like platform holders or like stakeholders and stuff or is it was what does that look like as as far as you can talk about it obviously like if stuff is under nda yeah what's great is that it's all under nda so i can talk about <laughs> all of it very broadly um i think Good. as an indie the focus is taking meetings uh, with as many people as possible just to see opportunities and what arises, whether that's platform holders, partners, um, you know, other even people in other industries to see if they're interested in stuff. I know, um, like, for example, I took a meeting with Lego. They've been very public about, you know, their interest in getting into video games. They just did the partnership with Lego on uh, Forza stuff. Um I have no idea where that's going. That, you know, 99% of these go nowhere, but it was, hey, I know somebody who knows somebody at this company. Why don't we go have a beer and, and stuff like that? Um, you know, being an indie is hard, getting all these partnerships and and uh, the money when it can come in and when it fits uh, is is important. So going to these things is just, yeah, a lot of a lot of shaking hands, really, uh, and a lot of uh, late nights. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of grocks with. Uh, I had Adam Becca Seltzman on during E3, and they were saying some similar stuff. Of like, we also like since we have relationships with all these platform holders, like need to make sure that they still know we exist. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and honestly, like the the way that we talked about it, it was like what was it? Business hangouts. Like that's what we started calling them. Uh, it's. It's people in the industry who are my friends randomly, and then sometimes they work in places that can help us out, and sometimes they don't, and I just want to meet them up, uh, meet up with them anyway. Um, and the industry is so circular. I mean, somebody who works somewhere one year is going to work somewhere completely different the next year. You know, people move from PlayStation to Respawn to Polygon to all these different areas, um, and just. Staying in the conversation, making friends, keeping friendships fresh. I, I always say the best friendships are made at like three in the morning over uh, a plate of waffles and eggs. 
So uh, getting as many of those plates of waffles and eggs in as possible. <laughs> that's my E3 goal. Just waffles and eggs. Yeah, that's a good that's a good goal. Yeah, it's uh, uh, California has some really good diners. I mean, you know, both in San Francisco and L.A., I feel GDC and E3 are the best late night food snacking areas. Yet I ended up in a waffle house at GDC at one one early ass morning. There you go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, which I wouldn't qualify as like really, really nice diners. But um, I know everyone raves about Mel's, which I think I would too. I think. Yeah, Mel's, Mel's is... In, I have actually a pretty funny anecdote about the programmer on my team at Mel's. This was when we were both working at Visceral Games like way, way long ago. And we were at Mel's and he... He speaks French as his first language, so sometimes stuff comes out of his mouth a little ruder than he intends it to. He just has trouble translating it. And so he ordered a milkshake and was, you know, a little bit inebriated, maybe. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, the milkshake hadn't come for like maybe four or five minutes. And he grabs a waiter and he says, how long does it take to make a milkshake? <laughs> and that's how we nearly got kicked out of Mel's deservedly <laughs> mind you um at like three or four in the morning so let's talk about uh your projects the projects that the wandering band has made and is currently making tell me about tell me about case of distrust and then tell me about airborne kingdom and then like what kind of you know what what are the wandering bands kind of like overall goals like design wise game wise with like these these two products oh man that's really interesting so I, I will say a case of distrust was made by me the wandering ben which is technically and legally a completely separate entity than the wandering band so i left um visceral games and started my own thing and then conned uh, a few really really talented friends to join me for the next one um a case of distrust is a narrative mystery game it takes place in 1924 in San Francisco. You're playing private investigator Phyllis Malone, and she's trying to solve a case of deceit and deception. I've heard it described shorthand kind of as a, a narrative, like a, a novel, an interactive narrative meets something like a Phoenix Wright game or a point-and-click adventure. Uh, and I'd say that's like a fair, that's a fair comparison. Uh, on the complete other side, we have Airborne Kingdom, which is a game where you build your own unique sky city and fly it around a procedural landscape. And you're searching for resources, technologies, quests, and new people to come into your city. This is very different. It's kind of like Frostpunk meets, you know, this fantastical universe meets an exploration game. It has a lot less writing in it and a lot more systems, and it's an interesting, different challenge. And I think if I were to say one thing about The Wandering Band in general is, at least me personally, what I really like about video games is that you can design them to be completely different things. A Case of Distrust is a video game. Airborne Kingdom is a video game. Forza Horizon is a video game. Zelda is a video... They're all so different, and there's so much space you can choose to explore. And I think we just like to make what we're excited to play. And Airborne Kingdom is just really the one of the things that all of us are really interested in when we started comparing notes of what types of games do we like? Uh, City Builders were one. Exploration was one. Fantastical settings was was something we were all really we we all really really liked. So it it just it fit. Uh, maybe maybe future things will fit in that same mold, or maybe there'll be a racing sports game. <laughs> I don't know. Sure. Okay. Um, that's interesting. So you like you don't try to like um, 
focus or establish a a house brand like the house brand of a wandering band might be like the the quality that you get that your games have but like not specifically like a certain genre or a certain tone yeah i mean we're gonna sit here probably in in five years where we have made three city building games and then i'll tell you no wandering band is totally about city building uh no but I, I, I think genuinely we're just after making really high quality games and challenging ourselves professionally uh, to do to, to kind of push the boundaries of where games can go. I would also say so Airborne Kingdom and A Case of Distrust, uh, not to constantly compare the two, obviously, because they're 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 two separate entities or two separate games. They're both um, my babies. I can't choose. Yeah. <laughs> But one of those babies, at least from the outset, seems to have a uh, much larger uh, scope. Like Airborne Kingdom, like you said, it has city builder vibes, it has yeah. exploration vibes, whereas uh, Case of Distrust is a linear uh, narrative focus, interactive fiction, almost kind of kind of influence. Um, so obviously, like you said, you need to staff up. You went from a, a team of one to a team of four. Quadruple in team size. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> We're huge. Ballooning. It, it, yeah. Explosive growth over here. <laughs> That seems like you built the team first and then said, okay, now we're going to figure out what project we want to make. Yeah, basically. It was it was around the end of A Case of Distrust when Chi approached me. Chi Fong is our art director, um, our, our artist as well, because there's only one of them. Um, and he was the art director at Visceral Games right as they shut down. And they were shutting down right around the time I was finishing up on A Case of Distrust. And so it just happened to be by the benevolence of whatever fate we're all doomed to, to uh, jointly, you know, uh, go along with uh, that he was available, right, and, and willing to work on something right when I needed to work on my next thing. Uh, and when somebody as talented as Chi Fong comes knocking and says, hey, do you want to work together? My answer is, hell yes. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so we, we started brainstorming what to do. Fred is somebody that I've been wanting to work with for a while. Him and I are really, really good friends. Uh, we work together at Visceral as well. And so I kept bugging him kind of throughout his time. He went to EA Motive after that. Um, and he was working there for a bit and I was, you know, slowly seeding this idea of, Hey, you know, cheese in on this. Do you want in on this too? And eventually he decided to quit that and come join us as well. And so, yeah, we're, we, we really started brainstorming ideas that we all really, really liked. And from the beginning, we wanted, to, we wanted it to be something we were all committed, um, an idea that we were all committed to, rather than, oh, this is something Chi would like to make, or oh, this is something Ben or Fred would like to make. We wanted to make sure that all of us enjoyed this game, because with a team of just one designer, it's really, really hard to playtest a game and make sure that it's fun. When there are four voices in the room, it's a lot easier for people to say, oh, hey, actually, this part doesn't work for me, and then kind of suss out why that is. It's, it's a lot better when everybody on the team can kind of act as a designer. It's, it's helpful for me anyway. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure also, like you said, like like the long like the the vast amount of experience and knowledge since you're pulling these people from from AAA and they have all this experience working working in that that I mean it's different than like you have a bunch of uh you know fresh-faced people that are just starting out trying to make a game from the indie perspective. It's scary, right? We we calculated it. We think we have exactly 50 years of experience between the four of us. Uh Zach our producer has the most. I think he spent 19 years at EA or something, which is pretty ridiculous. Um, but yeah, every every one of us has about a decade of experience or more. So um, it's it's kind of cool. It's it's good that 
you know, we're such a small team. We don't have the ability to train people on. I would love to like take an intern and kind of, you know, teach them how to code or teach them how to design or, or cheat to give them art tips and stuff. But man, we got to make a video game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, it's really, really helpful that everybody that we have on the team is kind of an expert of their own side of the craft. It's good. Um, and I assume you're all remote. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Chi is still in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. Zach moved up to Seattle. I am here in Denver. And Fred ping-pongs back and forth between Montreal and Peru. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Is that, does he have family in Peru? Like, what's the... Yeah, what's his, the... his wife is from Peru, so they go back and forth, but he just likes it there. He's, he's traveled all his life. He really enjoys traveling. I really enjoy traveling, hence the wandering part. <laughs> got it. Got it. So, moving to... Denver should clarify you're in Denver Colorado um moving to Denver was more kind of an interest of going out there not like a a form of necessity yeah my wife's family is is out here um necessity is an interesting term it was basically we we lived in San Francisco we moved away we traveled Southeast Asia for a year and when we came back to the U.S. we thought well where do we want to go next and we looked at the bay and we looked at Hey, currently Ben hasn't released a game and doesn't have an income. Maybe that part of the world is a bit too expensive right now. Uh, why don't we try other parts? And and um, Amanda grew up in Boulder, which is just like a half hour away, and loves it here. And so she moved me here, and now I love it here, and I can't really picture moving anywhere else anytime soon. That's cool. Yeah, I've only uh, seen Colorado from the uh, window of a train from Train Jam. So Nice, there you go. Yeah, I've thought about hopping on at Denver because I know they come through here. That would be cool. Just like hanging on Mr. Bean style right at the edge. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we talked about that, actually, because uh, when we ran to each other at GDC, we we discussed that. Um, and yeah, uh, if you're willing to get up at like four in the morning to catch right. the train. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> that's about the time it pulls into to the station there at Denver. So you mentioned how some some of your partners in your studio kind of came out of Visceral like as Visceral was shutting down. Um, but it seems you left Visceral earlier. I'm, I'm always talking to devs that kind of come out of AAA and start making something on the indie side. Like especially at GDC, you see a lot of devs. It's like, yeah, I used to be at this studio, that studio, and now I'm, and now I'm doing this whole thing. Was that like a kind of like I want to work on my own my own stuff as opposed to other external factors kind of make you not want to be in AAA anymore? Yeah, it was jealousy, honestly, more than anything. It was, I, I, you know, I got into video games because I, I play video games and I wanted to make the cool things that I played. And once I got into AAA, I realized that, well, actually, all the video games that I'm playing now are indie. What the hell am I doing here? <laughs> so going going the indie route just totally made sense for me. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I It was super duper duper scary i i don't uh, think it's necessarily for everybody i think there's a lot in AAA that's good including especially you know some type of i mean it's still a little waney but more job security than you definitely get at, at an indie studio um and just the types of games that you can make are very different right it's a it's a different atmosphere making a game with 100 200 300 people than it is making it with one or four and depending on the types of games that people want to make i don't begrudge anybody for staying in AAA. I think it's a really really cool space to be in if that's what you want and i had a lot of fun there too i just knew that for my career the next step was making what eventually came out to be a case of distrust 
what kind of knowledge from your experience in AAA do you think like applies to your work in indie that you never saw coming? Also, um, I'm curious, like, what was your what was your role? Like, what was your title at at Visceral? At Visceral, I started out as a software engineer, and by the end of it, I was the lead systems designer. So, kind of hopped around a little bit. Um, what didn't AAA teach me? That's probably an an easier question to answer. Um, no, I, I, so I, I do some teaching at the university of Denver uh, in, in their game design program. And what I tell all my students kind of going out, I, I teach seniors mostly. What I tell them is have somebody else pay for your training. College is good, but there's only so much you can be taught when at the beginning you don't really know how to program. You don't really know anything about game design. You're not really sure what you want to do. As soon as you get thrown into a AAA or, or even any type of studio environment, you realize that you got to hit the ground running. Like there's a lot that you need to learn and you need to learn it quickly. Um, what's great is that somebody else is paying for your learning. <laughs> so you're not doing it on your own. You know, you're not trying, you're not making mistakes and then not eating because of them. You're you're maybe making mistakes and then your lead can tell you, hey, this is a mistake and here's why, right? Um, so between design techniques, you know, even just uh, formatting code and kind of organizing a project in that way uh, to something that people really don't, I think, talk about enough is scheduling in AAA. Like, yes, AAA games crunch, and yes, they slip their schedule, but that's not because they're necessarily bad at making a schedule. There are other issues with AAA. Again, with 300 people, communication's a big issue. Uh, financing the length of time that you need. Like, every every month is way more people than four people. So, you know, getting those finances can be tricky. But in terms of the way that they break down a project, it's actually really useful to know that stuff, to know how to write a bug even, or to know how to, or to know how to interact with different disciplines. Even, you know, I was a programmer and designer, but I've never been an artist. And yet working with artists helps me now work with Chi, working with producers helps me work with Zach. I think it's super extremely helpful to, to be in kind of a controlled garden space before you go out on your own and try to hack it. Do students show any interest either way in being like, oh, I'm actually really interested in like pursuing indie first even though you you advise this kind of like have someone have someone pay for your education or pay for your you know your experience for you to be able to learn or is it a lot of, a lot of students like mostly focusing on on wanting to do something in AAA? Yeah, that's interesting. I actually think most students want to work at a big studio. Most students get excited about oh, I want to make Diablo or something. Um, but you do have some people who who want to jump right into indie gaming and. I, I wouldn't necessarily discourage that completely. Like, I mean, if that's if that's something that you really, really believe in and really want to do, then then maybe that is the right call. Who am I to say that's what Vlambeer did and they're doing awesome. So, you know, clearly I'm wrong about them. But I would say it's it's very hard in this space now, especially without any name recognition behind you. And especially when, hey, you are going to make mistakes doing your first commercial product. So if you think you can take on that risk, then by all means, go for it. I just think that there are more unknown unknowns than you know that there are. Sure. I, I also alternatively think of the other side, like if you can get someone to pay for your experience, like obviously we're talking about someone that might have a, a game design or a, a degree that's focused in some sort of tract in game development. But when you're providing that advice, it's like college is good, but like 
have a studio be able to pay for your continued learning um my mind jumps to like how a lot of a lot of triple a is is focused in very select cities those cities can be very yeah, expensive it's true. um a, a lot of work is is temp work it's contracted so like you know sometimes the assumption isn't there that you'll be able to pay your bills because it might be a a six month contract maybe even less yeah no uh there are lots of problems with triple a with, with with like the with the big industry in general i mean i don't i don't really have an answer to that other than hashtag workers unite i'm very um i'm very big in the in the space of thinking that we should unionize you know, game labor, which will make it definitively harder to get into video games, but only because video games will then be a better place to work for more people. Uh, yeah, no, I get it. It's it's absolutely a hard industry, and I think that's something you have to consider before you make the plunge, either as an indie or or in AAA, right? Um, but but again, just just to circle back to that point, it's almost like having somebody pay for your master's degree if you if you go into something like that. And and I agree, like the opportunities might not be there for everybody. So the best thing you can do to try to get a AAA job is actually to try to make an indie game. And who knows, maybe you'll succeed at making an indie game and you'll never need to go to AAA and get an education because like, oh my God, you're already, you're the, you're the best. Or maybe that game stutters, maybe it doesn't sell well for whatever reason, maybe it peters out and you never finish it, but then you have a portfolio piece that maybe you can then take to get one of those jobs. So I do think that making games like, like yeah, I, I want to make sure I'm not misstating my point or anything. Making games at every point in your career, whether you're a student, whether you're currently in AAA, or whether you're an indie just making your own side projects while doing your own game, I think is very, very useful. Looking at Somebody like Double Fine, where they have their Amnesia Fortnite, where two weeks of every year, they just take some time to go make prototypes and demos of things that probably won't ever see production. But it's just fun to get your creative juices flowing. It's good to learn new techniques and technologies. Um, and I think it's just really important as a human to not be, you know, tunnel visioned into one specific area. So, yeah, make games. Always make games. Keep making games. Yeah. So, like you said, not being tunnel visioned, um, it's interesting, like, how... You know, in AAA, you can you're, you're uh, more of a specialist, and then now when you have to shift over to indie, you're more of a generalist or a versatileist. You have to wear many hats, like a lot of people know this. But um, I'm curious, even within your team, what was that like? Like your your art director going from like, hey, I'm just the art director to like, oh, well, I'm also creating all the assets all the art assets or that's interesting right uh, so chi started out as a as a production artist and i think most of the time even even when he was an art director he spent a lot of time making production assets so so that part he knows but there are there are other parts that we're all learning right so none of us were a technical artist before any of this what is technical art well it's shader stuff it's you know knowing how many polygons you can put on a screen at one time. It's knowing how many draw calls you have. It's knowing what a good animation budget is and when you're over it and when you're not. A lot of that is coming from trial and error, if I'm honest. And a lot of that is coming from the contacts that we made at our old jobs. We're having old friends come in and take a look at some of the stuff that we're doing and going, are we crazy? Is this right? Is this what we should be doing? Is this not? Um, and I think... The indie community itself is really nice and really warm. And the people that you meet at different events want to help each other out. I just talked to somebody today about my experience launching a case of distress on Switch and the things that you should watch out for when porting to Switch and stuff. Um, I think... 
people are really, really open to giving you feedback because we all just want to make games better. Going into that, out of curiosity, what is what is A Case of Distrust uh, made in and what were your hurdles <laughs> doing it on Switch? Right, yeah. So A Case of Distrust is made in Unity. Uh, th- this is going to get kind of technical. We'll see <laughs> We'll see how oh, deep we no. want to go. I know. No, no it's fine. Uh, go I, as deep as you want. On a very, very kind of broad level, there is a way that I was loading assets in um, A Case of Distrust on PC, which is the same way that uh, Inkle loads assets on 80 Days in Heaven's Vault. And that is not by mistake. That's because I got their code from them because they're super nice people. Uh, uh, Joe from Inkle today, I was talking to him. And he said, hey, you know, we're looking at potentially different things to do on different consoles. Uh, they, they were looking specifically at their PS4 streaming and thinking, like, how could we get PS4 streaming to be a little bit better? And um, I, I told him, you know, what made my streaming better on Switch was switching away from the way you guys are doing it and instead doing it in a completely different way that you might have to rewrite everything. Now, I don't think they're going to go rewrite Heaven's Vault on PS4, but it's interesting just sharing that knowledge, saying, hey, you know what? On PC, this worked. On Switch, this didn't. Why might this not work as quickly on PS4? Maybe because of the, the pipeline and the thing that you're, you're doing with it. Right. Um, so, and, then, and then actually that led into a conversation with somebody else uh, who was in that same Slack channel about him porting his game to Switch uh, and I don't think his game is announced yet for Switch, so I don't want to, like, out anybody. Um, but he was doing stuff the way that Heaven's Vault and, and 80 Days in a Case of Distress PC does it. And he had enough time where he said, okay, actually, I'm going to switch to this new way just so I don't deal with these problems. I think everyone's going to kind of run into some issues with Switch just since Switch, like, just doesn't have as much overhead on it. And the Switch has one spec, and, you know, it's kind of on the lower side. Like, like that Tiger chip's powerful, but it's not like top of the line, right? And it's really interesting, right? The it's ugh, this is getting really technical, but like where where they put their their kind of resources in in memory pipelines and and in terms of like what is fast on it and what isn't. If you look at the Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, that game looks absolutely gorgeous. How is that thing running on the Switch? Well, it's because that team knew exactly where the right places were to turn up their dials and and where it wasn't right. You'll notice that that game doesn't have many complicated textures. Well, that's because their texture streaming isn't that great on the Switch. But what does it do really well? Well, it does a lot of shader stuff and and very specific shader things like the grass is done really 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 well in in uh, Breath of the Wild because that stuff can run way better on the Switch. So it's about knowing you know, especially if you're going to make a game purely for the Switch, knowing what dials you can tune and, and what you shouldn't, right? Right. I mean, especially with Nintendo. I mean, with Nintendo first party, it's the Apple model, right? It's like they, it's the idea that software and hardware combined is, is very powerful. If you have both being made in-house, you can rock it really well. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I think that's a lot of first party stuff. And like, God of War is gorgeous. Holy cow. How did they get that thing running on a PS4? That's crazy. <laughs> Or like there's the thing with like the Blood Moon stuff in Breath of the Wild where it's like basically it's excuse to like memory dump or like clear yeah, the cache. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's and, and that's like a really good example of design working within the limitations of, of a system that can lead to something really cool. I mean, I think the Blood Moon as a design conceit actually works really well, right? It's it's making the enemies 
harder and harder and harder as you're getting better at the game and not hiding that from you, like like very, you know, showing that to you very literally. I think that's actually kind of cool. Um, another thing that you did with the case of distress is that I saw on Steam, like you have a demo available. Yeah. Do you have a, is there a demo for it on Switch as well? Uh, that's a good question. I think there is. Yeah, it, w- it would be the same demo, so I don't see why it wouldn't be up there, but I, I could be wrong. So I feel like the past, I don't know, five, ten years, a lot of stuff, uh, the conversations go back and forth about whether or not demos are tenable for, for any game, specifically indies. Like, you know, you saw with the Ouya, like their big thing is like, hey, there's going to be a demo for every game on our platform because like we want people to be able to to play the game before they buy. And, you know, some... I mean, clearly some... that, was, that was very successful, <laughs> right? That, yeah, <laughs> that right. turned things well, around for them. I don't I don't think we should we should, you know, the uh, anchor we shouldn't chain the game demo to the Ouya's failure, I think. <laughs> those those might be a little a little independent of one another. But uh like I, I've seen devs say, Hey, don't do demos because people will play the demo and, and determine like, hey, I don't wanna I don't wanna buy the full game and then that's a potential lost sale. Some people say do do demos because at least you're you're showing a uh, a confidence in your product and like a, a goodwill towards consumers what was your thinking creating a demo for a very like narrative focused game and then also did you see do you think that helped or hindered ultimately the the success of case of distress so i had just heard a piece of advice that said steam features you more if you have a demo and i already had a demo uh, from going to shows, uh, you know, being at Indie Mega Booth and at all the PAXs and at GDC, being with IndieCade, both at their own show and at E3, I had to get a demo ready for that stuff. So it was pretty easy to just take that demo and plop it up on Steam. And and this just happened to kind of be lucky, but my demo was the very beginning of my game. So it's about 10 minutes, or it should be about 10 minutes. I've seen streamers online play it for 40 minutes, and I'm like, how did you, oh my God, you're really digging deep into all these things. Uh, but it it was supposed to be a pretty short demo. Um, and then at the end of it, you can take that same save file. If you if you play the demo and then download the full release, you can take that same save file and it'll just continue your game, which I thought was was a good thing to do. Um, in terms of was it was it actually worth it? I don't know. That's a That's a good question. I'm sure there's a way to look into that, that uh, I'm not smart enough to have done already. <laughs> um, but I think from um, from a consumer standpoint, I think that it's a good thing to do if you can. With a case of distrust, it was really, really easy to do. But if that had taken me another, even another month or two to put together, I would rather have spent that month or two making the game better. And again, indies don't really have that much time ahead of them. It's not like we're all working with these crazy budgets or, you know, if we're, if we can't release now, we can just extend by six months. Um, different indies work different ways for me personally on a case of distrust it it was a window that it had to come out in and so if it if it had slipped that window i wouldn't have been able to to put a demo out unless it was a really quick demo you know so i think it's important to to actually make the base game better and if the demo takes time away from that i don't think it's probably worth it yeah i mean i think the way you're describing your demo is very similar like this is super anecdotal but like uh, I remember playing the first episode of the first season of Walking Dead, and I think they just like gave the first. I don't think it was the first full episode. I think it was like the first maybe half an hour, hour of that game. That's a very good way to incentivize people to get the full episode or get the full season. 
Um, obviously not anymore <laughs> since you can't get those games. But I uh, I remember playing that and downloading it to my Xbox 360 however many years ago and being like, wow, I really need to play the rest of this because I want to see how this ends. And so it's really cool that it, it seems to have worked in the same vein for Case of Distressed. Yeah, and the demo leaves it off at like kind of a cliffhanger moment. It's the first choice you really have to make. Do I go here, here, or here? And so it... it um I think it's a good spot for people to to imagine what's next, and hopefully they've gotten just enough of a taste that they want to do it. Also, the game's not that expensive, so go buy it. <laughs> it's also Steam Summer Sale, so it is a Steam Summer Sale. I think we're sixty percent off or something. There you go. Plug in the game. I, I I'll I'll uh, say out the URL: http semicolon backslash backslash. No, I'm kidding. Uh, it's forward slash Ben. Thank you. And it's a and it's a full colon. I get it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I kind of curious, kind of branching off. I don't know if you've been paying attention to like the uh, the Steam Summer Sale meta game uh, oh, debacles yeah. that's that's happening. Yeah. Um. So like for people that don't know, basically the Steam Summer Sale has this meta game where you like participate in the Steam Grand Prix or whatever they call it, and basically you assign yourself to a team, you accumulate points. I assume you accumulate the points via purchasing games. And then whoever like has the uh, the most points, a person is randomly selected. And what they didn't clarify is the game that's at the top of your wish list is given to you for free. Yes. And what what it was originally stated as like a game from your wish list will be given to you for free. So people were assuming that it was <laughs> a, a a a randomly assigned game, and people started deleting games from their wish lists and that ultimately ended up being a lot of indie games because people wanted a triple a game for free because that's 60 dollars as opposed to an indie game which is normally less expensive yeah and so we saw a lot of people talking about how their wish list deletion rates were like skyrocketing and then some people were like hey my deletion rates are the same as they were last year during the steam sale and there was a lot of like back and forth i was curious of like you know if that's been affecting you whether on your on case of distressed or airborne kingdom I, does airborne kingdom have a steam page yet it does yeah you can go you can go wishlist it now or, or better yet join our discord so we can talk about it um the uh the wishlist stuff sorry i blanked for a second yeah no that's that's real that affected both games quite a lot that was more deletions than i've ever seen and it's not there, there is a difference, right? So people assume, maybe people in media or, 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 or consumers assume that, oh, deletion just means that you bought the game and therefore it got deleted off the wish list. That's not how that works. Steam right. Steam makes that a different number. They call it like a wish list transaction or a wish list something. Yeah. So the There's a conversion rate conversion, there. Conversion, yeah. I think it's called a wish list conversion, exactly. So the deletions are actually going up way, way, way higher um, and yeah, that's, that's a thing with both games. Um, I gotta be careful what I say. I don't want to get in trouble here. You know, I could get of in course, a lot of yeah. trouble, but, but I think, honestly, I think that's a really great example for why we need competition in the space for PC gaming stores. Um, Steam is a black box and it controls a lot of things without anybody including a lot of the people at Valve themselves really knowing how it works. And they've been very public that they're that they're planning to take their current algorithm and turn it into a machine learning algorithm. And what that means is the machine takes their current algorithm and keeps trying to improve it slowly, 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 slowly to the point where nobody's going to know how it works. Like 
the machine just created something and we assume that it's fine, but we're not sure. And as soon as you're going to change a parameter, either now or in the future, when it's even more of a black box, that's going to affect so many people in so many different ways. And that's extremely scary. Now, now listen, I, I think indie games basically survived because of Steam and, and, and really started there. And sure, they got on Xbox and other platforms, but that's really the place where they started. So I don't want to say that, you know, Valve is evil or anything like that. No, I, I genuinely think that they're trying to do a good job, but their job is very hard. They're trying to serve their customers the games that they want, and they're trying to be the curator of of those games and who wants what game, and they're trying to set an algorithm to recommend things, and maybe that's not always the best case for my game or other indie games uh, when, you know, it seems like Valve, for whatever reason, likes to recommend more AAA things more recently or likes to set their, their bars a little bit higher for when the the 30% gets scaled lower and lower and lower um, in a way that that isn't, at least that's not currently very indie friendly. So having these other stores like Itch, like the Epic Store, like the Discord Store, I think is very, very helpful. I still think Steam is is a great service for a lot of people, but it's it's moments like this, right? When they when they do something that that maybe they're not intending to have a certain effect, but it does. And because Steam is really the the biggest store, and and for a lot of people the only store out there, um, it it affects like their livelihood, right? If if people are deleting wish lists off of your game, the kind of the average that Steam gives you is between 10 and 15% of wish listers will eventually turn into people who buy your game. Well, a, a wish list deletion, if there's a lot of them, could cost you 5, 10, maybe even the full 15% of your eventual sales. And that's a lot for indies that rely on that stuff to like eat next month, you know? Yeah. I'm just, I'm always curious because the conversation around that stuff is uh, kind of always kind of turns to a um valve isn't justifying it's 30 percent on steam i was listening to i think it was giant bomb and they were talking about like the 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 murmurings that they got at e3 was that the 30 percent rev split is like pretty much like on its way out the door like i mean you already see that with like humble having its split and then itch having its uh choose your own revenue split or you know have a zero percent revenue split towards towards itch and discords and epic having a, a different splint i don't know like I, I did one of the steam roundtables at at gdc and there was that thing with tim sweeney like way back when where he was saying how like actually 30 percent's too high like here are the numbers that factor into like our expenses and this way less and then yeah. going to this roundtable and the reps at steam were saying that oh actually we can justify this 30 percent like our expenses are are higher i also agree that i don't think i don't think valve or steam is the the bad guy here um but i think it's it's hard to to deal with when when so many indies are already on razor thin margins then this stuff comes out it almost like cuts their knees out yeah it's uh it, it's hard for sure i mean that's why you know people say the indie apocalypse and stuff happened and um some of these are the reasons for it right so uh i i understand that for example there are some subset of fans that are upset with epic for all their exclusivity stuff um, but for me as a game developer, I feel any time that competition gets added, I think it's really good. And the way that you really have to compete with somebody like a Valve, or at least one way, is to lock up exclusives. Because if you look at a place like Itch, I think Itch is wonderful. I think it's great. 
But if you look at the percentage of sales that come from a place like itch, it's very, very low. I wish all of my players would would buy the game on itch. Hey, you get a Steam key anyway. You can still play it on Steam. It's fine if that's where you want to do your games. You can buy it there. But there are so few people that do that. There are so few people that like, you know, there there are lots of people that listen to your podcast. There are lots of people that listen to, you know, the giant bombcast and all these places. But the percentage of those people that really um, go out and buy the games versus people who don't know anything about this weird niche area of the industry is is so lopsided to people who just go, oh, hey, it's on Steam and, and, and they buy it, right? And so I think any any way that you can get people off of that one platform and to realize that, hey, different platforms are actually going to be better for people. I think, I think everybody, you know, just is trying to make their own bread in the world today. I get it. Life's hard. Um, but as a game developer, I appreciate more competition. Yeah, I, I do as well. Let's talk about Airborne Kingdom some. Yeah, um, I like that game. I hear it's cool. It is cool. My buddy Ben said it was cool. Oh, he's a great guy. You should listen to him. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll definitely listen to him then. <laughs> so, like we said, it's kind of it's kind of a bigger in scope. Obviously, the 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 uh, you're working with more collaborators or any collaborators for this game. What's your timeline? What's your what's your what's your goals? I'm I'm not sure how far along you are because Case of Distress came out how long ago? Yeah, Case of Distress came out a year and a few months ago, February of last year of 2018. Um, so yeah, we've been working on this kind of. You know, I took a bit of a break after a case of distress. I didn't jump yeah. whoosh, right, you know, two feet into something else. But yeah, it's been it's been going for a little bit. Uh, I think one thing that a case of distress has done for me, and kind of just the the privileged uh, places that that we're coming from, coming from AAA and coming from you know getting uh, kind of the salaries that we did for a while, means that we can take our time with this one. Um, and so. If I were to give you a date, it would probably be a lie. Like, honestly, whatever we think is going to happen will change and will be different. And the amount of time that we're going to spend polishing the game is is kind of hopefully the amount of time that it needs. And and we have we have the time to give it. And so we're going to use up that time. Got it. And you have you have taken this this game out, uh, like showed it around already. Have you taken it to a convention? It was at GDC, and it was a super duper 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 early version of it. Um, it was because it was at GDC that we wanted to go because we really wanted to get other devs' input on what we were doing. It showed way better than we thought it was going. To. We thought it was going to be in like this little corner area. Nobody was going to really walk by it. Ah, you know, we'll get a couple people. We'll just talk to them. Holy cow! Did people really like it? It resonated with a lot of people a lot more than we thought it was going to. So we were extremely happy with how that went. And we went, okay, we know it's we know it's working, we know it's resonating with people. Let's actually take the time to give it the polish it deserves. Did you show it as part of any mega booth at GDC? We did, yeah, yeah. We were there. I love those guys. Indie Mega Booth is great. If you're ever at any game show, please go to the Indie Mega Booth area. You will have the best time there. And like you said, you showed it primarily to devs. Um what's what's kind of like your your experience or like opinion on that because I, I i know like people like tanya short tanya short's very much like hey showing your game to devs is great but also like devs are devs yeah they're gonna be like they can be super analytical and try to like theory craft your game oh, totally. so much um but alternatively like sometimes you need that like professional to professional view instead of jumping straight to a, a player or consumer yeah is there like 
any aspects of the game where it's like, okay, this this is a more dev problem or a question I would want to focus on a dev, say for like the system stuff. Like systems design, I feel like a developer would have a lot more opinions about than say a player, unless they're like a super like in the weeds, min-maxer kind of player. Yeah, it's it partly is that, right? It's partly trying to get a bit of the the, the theory of the craft from these people. But uh, the other thing too is it's easier for a dev to squint and see a finished game than it is for a consumer. By definition, devs have seen unfinished games for their whole professional careers, or at least their professional careers in games. And so it's a lot harder to show an unpolished, unfinished, maybe even like a short little segment of a game to a consumer and say, no, 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 I promise, like, it'll be filled in, it'll be good, don't get mad at me right now, please. Um, that's partly true with the media too. I think I think the media's gotten a lot better at that these days. So we we had a couple people, you know, from different media outlets come by Indie Mega Booth and see it, and we thought they weren't going to care about it, and actually they really enjoyed it. And when we told them, hey, you know, this this part isn't implemented yet, or this whole section's going to completely change, they seem to get it. They seem to understand it. It, it I think uh, having that kind of industry knowledge has come more recently into media in general. And I think it's really, really helpful for moments like this so that I can tell you, hey, this is going to change. Don't like ignore the man behind the curtain right, right now. Right? Yeah, yeah. All the all the construction tape and whatnot, just like all the barricades. Like, yeah, 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 exactly. They'll get, <laughs> get filled in. Yeah, I feel like uh, in my experience, the biggest hindrance to like someone being able to, to see the potential of a game is usually like something uh, technological- like I've 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 played demos, floor demos that are like super polished, but like the frame rate is still super low because yeah, they right. haven't they haven't they haven't finished on that uh, part. They haven't um, uh, what's the word? Uh, what whatever they haven't they haven't they haven't utilized or or addressed that stuff or whatever like their heavy memory loads yeah, are. Yeah, it's not it's not optimized. Yes, yes, that's the word I was looking for. And um, that could be like a huge thing because like it's hard to be like, okay, here's what the game is and here's the potential. And I could feel the game when the game is, you know, running at 10 or 15 frames a second. Well, and that's that's a good point. And I think it depends on the game that you're playing, too. Right. I think even for developers, even for developers working on the game itself, if you're making a dead cells and that's running at five or 10 frames a second, you're not getting any valuable feedback of what that game is and what makes that game cool and what makes it interesting. Um, But if you're playing Dead Cells and it's running at a fantastic frame rate, but all of the enemies are cubes, well, I can squint and turn a cube into an enemy and go, oh my God, this feels amazing. Whereas I think there's a subset of fans that go, oh my God, it's all cubes. What the hell is this? I'm going to walk away and I'm going to, you know, my opinion of this game is forever tarnished because how dare they show me something with cubes. That's a bit of an exaggeration. I don't think people are, are that sort of dense, but but there are certain areas of games like shaders are a perfect example. Um, we wanted our game to run at a good frame rate. So we turned off a lot of the really interesting shaders that that are going to eventually make our game look and feel kind of unique in its own. And, and we had enough of those on so you could squint and see something cool. But we turned enough of them off that I think if a non-dev or somebody that wasn't really experienced at it looked at it, they'd go, oh, yeah, it looks OK. But, you know, 
uh, it could look better. Whereas we'd be like, no, 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 no. Like you, you see the, the, the shader that we're using now to have the tilt shift. Yeah. I, I know that doesn't look perfect right now, but we just wrote it in a day to like get it to do that. So it'll, it'll be a little better. Don't worry. Right, right, right. Are you, are you handling most of the, the, the shader tech or? Yeah. So it's, it's really a combination of, of everybody really. I think the two people that are most on it are uh, Fred, our programmer and Chi, our artist, we're using ShaderGraph, which is this kind of new Unity plugin with their new rendering pipeline. It's a whole different way to make graphics happen. Um, but Chi is really, really digging deep into that, and he's having a lot of fun with it. And then when ShaderGraph doesn't have enough stuff, Fred or I will jump in and and try to make it work with manual code. So it's like a lot of um, kind of WYSIWYG or UI-based yeah, solutions. Yeah, it's, it's visual programming, right? So you can think about it if you're familiar with Unreal. It's kind of like their blueprint mode. So it's here are nodes, here are inputs and outputs and stuff. And as somebody like me, who I'm not terribly experienced with shaders either, it's really great because I can take an output from one node. And if it doesn't go into another node, I can go, ah, I'm doing something wrong here. This won't right. let me put it in there. Clearly something in, in my own mental model is wrong. How can I change that? Or, or what am I doing that's wrong? And same with, oh, hey, in step four of this eight step shader, now it's pink. Why is it pink in step four? It shouldn't be pink. So yeah, I think I think the, the visual side, it's all about really democratizing game development. I think technology is always going to push further and further ahead. But the more we can keep up kind of a human readable format for that, the more people can get into making games. And honestly, the more people we get making games, the better games are going to be. You were talking about demoing stuff. And like, you know, your different experiences, like how different games kind of have to be demoed in different ways. And I feel like that's that's extremely uh, the case with things like narrative based games. So like, what was your experience with doing like floor demos with Case Distressed? So the the best recommendation I can give to anybody who's trying to do a narrative game at a place like PAX, which is extremely loud and, and heart raising and on, on purpose, you know, there's there's loud bouncing music everywhere is setting the expectation for when somebody comes to your booth. It's telling them, take a deep breath. This is a slower paced game. You're going to do a lot of reading. It's going to be interesting, but it's not going to be heart pounding. And so just, you know, setting them up for that expectation. It does one of two things. One, there is a small percent. There are a small percentage of people that will go, oh, neat and walk away. But they probably wouldn't have enjoyed it anyway, and that's fine. They, they weren't going to really like your game. They're not into that type of game. That's great. I think narrative games have their own niche for a reason. But I think what most people will do is they'll go, oh, cool, I needed a break too. And <laughs> yeah. they'll put on the headphones and get lost in your world in a way that they definitely would have w- would not have if they had just walked up and like right after, you know, Dance Central run around to your booth and gone, oh my God, cool, what's this? And tried to play it. So setting the expectations, I think, is really, really important. Do you try to do a seated experience with that game? Ooh, that's interesting. Are most Have most of them been seated? I don't know if it makes that much of a difference. Some of them have been, some of them haven't been. The important part is headphones and ideally noise-canceling headphones so that, yeah, that rock band setup in the corner isn't really messing with their ability to read sentences at, at a reasonable rate. Yeah, um, I asked for for a seat experience because I know, like you said, like 
people being excited to have a break from the hustle and bustle of the show floor. I think that's doubly the case if there is a chair or a oh, couch yeah, or something yeah, absolutely. to sit down on. I know for a fact that I have played demos solely because there is a couch available in the booth. Oh, yeah. If you have a big enough booth to have a couch, definitely have a couch. And the other hot tip is have water bottles as your swag. Everybody will come to you. That's smart. That's smart. Ben, is there anything else you'd like to, to talk about? We're kind of like we're coming up on an hour. Um, I'm kind of out of questions on my end. I'm curious if there's anything particularly that we kind of uh, mentioned that really stuck out to you. There's like, hey, we kind of glossed over this. I'd like to hit that. What's great about right now is I don't really have too much to plug. Like, yes, Airborne Kingdom is is coming, but it won't be coming for a while. It's very possible that I'll be on another show of yours before it comes out. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, go to the Discord. The website is airbornekingdom.com. The Discord link is on there. Come join us. Come talk to us. We're all there. Um, we'll answer a lot of questions, even ones we probably shouldn't about the game that might change. Um yeah, I don't know. I think the biggest thing I'm curious about is like, what did I miss from E3? What was the coolest thing that you saw that maybe that maybe I, I didn't know about or I didn't hear about? Oh wow! Oh no, you put it you put it back on me. The pressure's yeah. on. Ah, <laughs> oh, geez, I spent very. Did you have a floor pass? Did you go on the floor? At I did all? go on the floor. I thought the coolest stuff on the floor was the Nintendo stuff, and it had the longest line, so I didn't yeah. get to touch any of it. But I really want to see Gooigi. Um, <laughs> That was like the meme of the show. That and Keanu were the two things I wanted to see at the C three, and I missed both <laughs> Guigi and Keanu. Yeah, I saw I saw the uh, the Guigi statue, and I was like, huh, as I was being escorted to like our recording area on the show floor because right. <laughs> uh, I I did not I did not have a pass, so I was I had to be escorted by security on and off the uh, mm. the show floor. Um, you don't get to enjoy the fun of waiting in a line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't feel like I missed out on much. I feel like. <laughs> I mean, and I, I definitely don't stand in lines at PAX, so I don't feel the need to do it at E3. I don't know. I feel like the big thing for me is what Cyberpunk 2077 is. Like, what right? is what is that game? And yeah. is it is CD Projekt Red to me, because obviously there is a conversation, particularly around transphobia and yeah. th- that game and that studio during E3 that made me very uncomfortable sure and i'm curious what ultimately that game i feel like that game's going to come out and people are going to love it because it's a huge like marquee game that has a huge expectations and people love the witcher 3 i love the witcher 3 but i feel like that studio's output is not without flaw and i think it's because i think we hold cd project red to a higher standard for some reason maybe it's because of their like uh history of being a a crpg studio and maybe like they're they're they should be more aware than like generic quote-unquote that's not my feeling on it but other people's feeling of like triple a like blockbuster games like can come off a little tone deaf yeah i feel like witcher the witcher series misses the mark sometimes but tries and and try tried earlier in its existence than other AAA games uh, have. Um, and I'm curious if Cyberpunk 2077 is like going to come out. It's like, it's a really cool game, but it's like has these kind of major kind of societal flaws that we can't help but like acknowledge and look at 
and and detract from the overall experience or is it going to come out and it's like hey it's it's great it's also acknowledging like you know the the cyberpunk genre and what that means to like uh diverse people and like what is it going to hit kind of the marks that it has accidentally set out for itself yeah i mean cyberpunk itself at least to me feels like the first kind of place that said hey it's okay and it's actually cool to be different like all of the characters in cyberpunk have giant pink hair or are you know artificially modified in a certain way or have a different outlook on what it's like to be a hacker or something and especially because by definition cyberpunk is futuristic that comes with a lot of responsibility and I'm with you. I hope that they're aware of that. I think last year's demo uh, was a little bit better on that than maybe this year's was. Uh, they thankfully have enough time to adjust some of those things, or I'm hoping that they have enough time to adjust do some you, of those do things. You, do you think they have enough time? Because like, it's coming out next May, April. Yeah. Do you think that's a, a, a long enough tale for it's like, hey, we can address some of these issues because i mean i feel like some of those issues are tied into and i'm asking this because i feel like you would know better since you've worked in AAA. um i feel like some of those issues are inevitably tied into like asset creation either like voice acting or like you know art assets or, or any sort of stuff and and changing that stuff is like a huge switching cost sunk cost problem that i feel like maybe a studio of that size would not be willing to to do but maybe that's just my read on it. So I think it's important to, um, I think that they do have enough time and they have enough money to do it. Whether they want to or not is kind of up to them. I think it also depends on how kind of integrated a lot of these, uh, a lot of it, a lot of the complaints I heard about it was mostly like the wording and and kind of the way they referenced sort of trans people and, and different groups of people and the way they, they sort of, cast other people as as different and you know against kind of what normalcy kind of is if it's just changing a few words and you know just changing a few words that's that's a lot right like you said it comes with like more voice acting it comes with other stuff but i think it's it's important for the world that they're really trying to build um, I, I don't want to come off negative on cyberpunk. Also, I, I think it, we really have to wait until it comes out to see. Um, I, I will say, uh, I'll tell a little anecdote about cyberpunk last year. Last year, I didn't go to E3. Uh, last year, I didn't even go to PAX East. But um, I was kind of I had released a case of distrust and was kind of working a little bit on Airborne Kingdom as it was and kind of feeling a little bit burnt out on video games and and. I later talked to a bunch of other indies, and that's a very real thing, that after your game launches, you're kind of done with the industry for a couple of months. But having not known about this, I was internally kind of questioning myself quite a lot. I'd, I've wanted to make video games since I was 11. I've wanted to start my own indie studio since I was 18 or 19. And I, for the first time in my life, didn't really know if that was supposed to be the next step for me. The E3 demo of Cyberpunk 2077, when it came out and I saw it on YouTube, made me want to make games again. Like, made me certain that this is what I want to do. And 
I think something like that is extremely powerful. And I hope that they're wielding that power the right way. And I hope they're being inclusive the right way. And I think only really their final release is going to tell us the answers to those questions. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Well, Ben, I think that's a great place to wrap it up on. What say you? Yeah, that seems that seems good to me. Hey, this has been a fun hour. I'm going to go enjoy my Friday. Maybe maybe drink a beer at all the great breweries here in sunny Denver, Colorado. (laughs) Come and have a visit. It is. Is It's actually it's like 90 something degrees, which for my Canadian friends is almost 30, I think. So (laughs) it's sweltering. But you know what? It's a dry heat and we got plenty of cold beer. Yeah, I think it's around 91, 92. And so I'm, I'm, I'm feeling it. You're I'm feeling bacon. it, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> um, ben, you already mentioned where people can find some of your stuff. Where can people find you? I am at The Wandering Ben on Twitter. Uh, and Zach tweets a lot more than I do. He's our producer. He's at Zachulon on Twitter. And you can follow at A Wandering Band. Or again, go to AirborneKingdom.com and come on our Discord because I chat way more on that. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and if you like this podcast, you can find it at ward-games.com or on our Twitter at wardvideogames or anywhere you listen to a podcast. Just search for Wardcast. Ben, I want to thank you again. And I'm looking forward to seeing more of Airborne Kingdom and hope to have you on the show again. Yeah, thanks. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, come uh, invite me on the show again when I can plug this more seriously, when I can tell people <laughs> to like smash that buy button a hundred times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When the shaders are in, the shaders yeah, are yeah, in exactly. now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right, Ben. Thanks again. Great. Thanks.